Now, to give you some context into this nighttime meeting of Jesus with Nicodemus, Jesus' public ministry had begun in John 1 with his baptism by John the Baptist. The next day, he gained his first disciples. On the third day, we see Jesus perform his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. And shortly after this, the Passover is taking place, and Jesus goes with his disciples to Jerusalem. Jesus then displays his zeal for the holiness of God by driving the merchants and the money changers out of the temple. The Jews, however, are not pleased by this because they confront Jesus and demand to know who has given him the right to do what he has done. Some people believe in him because of the signs he is doing. But Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he knows they don't really want him, but only the comforts that he can provide them. And all of this brings us to John 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus, of all times, by night. Nicodemus' reason for coming under the cover of night could very well have to do with the controversy surrounding Jesus and his actions since arriving in Jerusalem. But regardless of the reason, the point is that Nicodemus goes looking for Jesus, and we see why in verse 2. His greeting shows us that, in some sense, he considers Jesus to be a teacher come from God. Because no one could do the signs he did unless God was with him. And he, no doubt, sought to inquire of Jesus about his mission. Now my message this morning will examine four key themes that will help us understand the meaning of Jesus' admonition to Nicodemus. The four themes are the nature of the kingdom, the nature of man, the nature of the new man or new creation, and the nature of the new birth. My goal in all this is to biblically make the case to you that if we are to enter God's presence, to live with him and be his people, we must be radically transformed. We are dead in our sins and full of wickedness, such that we are in danger of God's righteous punishment for our rebellion against him. So I'm not talking about cosmetic surface changes that uh, simply change the way we behave and the things that we say. I'm talking about being fundamentally changed on the inside, down to our very thoughts and desires. It's not nearly enough to do good deeds or to come to church for some good company and advice. We will not escape the wrath of God by pretending on the outside to be nice people while on the inside we are opposed to God's will. What we need is to be supernaturally changed from being faithless haters of God to being believing lovers of God. Because it is through faith in Jesus that man is saved. It is through Jesus that we are acceptable to God. His perfect life lived on our behalf is the reason we can be seen by God as righteous. And the only way you can see the truth and put your faith in Jesus is to be born again. So we will see all of these things this morning. So let's examine our first key theme, the nature of the kingdom. Look at Jesus' response to Nicodemus in John 3, verses 1 to 3. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus reply to Nicodemus' question in this way? Why talk about the new birth and the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus was responding to Nicodemus' claim that Jesus was a teacher come from God. And so possibly the prophet or Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. Messiah is the Hebrew word for Christ, which means the one who is sent, the chosen one. The Jews had expected God 
to raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people. And that this prophet would teach them the commands of God. We see that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. And it was indeed true that Jesus was that prophet. And of course, we now know that he was much more than that. But at that time, there was much confusion and misunderstanding about who the Messiah actually was in terms of what he would do and when he would do it. Take, for example, Peter's denial that Jesus had to die. We know that Peter knew more than most in Israel because God calls him blessed for having confessed that Jesus was the very Son of God. Because Peter had this truth revealed to him from above. Yet, he was wrong about an essential part of Messiah's identity. The fact that Jesus first had to suffer. And remember, Peter was a true believer. So what about those people who weren't true believers? What about people who only had an interest in the earthly, physical blessings that Messiah could provide? Among them, we see some recognition of Jesus as someone special. But of course, they didn't possess a saving faith to truly believe in him. Think of John 5, when the people sought to lay hold of him to make him their king by force because they had saw his power to feed thousands miraculously. We know many of these people didn't have saving faith because they would later turn away from following him. But the point is, they still recognized that he was no ordinary man. My point here is that one does not need to be a true believer to recognize that there is something special about Jesus. And even if you did know that Jesus was the Messiah, you could still be confused about his mission. Consider again the expectation his disciples express when our risen Lord appears to them in the first chapter of Acts. We read, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And again in Luke 19, those listening to the things Jesus was saying anticipated that the kingdom was going to appear immediately. We can even infer from how the Pharisees reacted to Jesus' ministry that they themselves recognized the expectation that the people had of him. One of the reasons they sought to kill him was the fear that the Romans, who ruled Israel at the time, would see Jesus as a threat to the rule of Caesar. And thus, they would destroy their comfortable lives and authority in Israel, along with the whole nation. The Jews expected that when Messiah came, he would make war with Israel's enemies immediately, and shake off Roman bondage, and immediately bring the kingdom to them. And that all Jews would partake in it because of their Jewish lineage. Entry into the kingdom was to them a birthright. So they needed to do nothing to obtain it. Simply being an Israelite was enough. Now we know that this simplistic view was wrong. Their entry was in fact dependent on their obedience to God's ordinances... And the Jews throughout the ages had been woefully disobedient. And something we will see later on. The root of their problem with disobedience goes all the way back to Adam. So Jesus' reply to Nicodemus is basically to say, Hang on, I see you have the kingdom on your mind, but you need to be radically transformed in order to get it. The nature of the problems that you face are deeper than the sort of problems that can be fixed by comfort and prosperity. Remember what the Jews were expecting. Freedom from their enemies. Health and wealth in the land. Governmental dominance over the rest of the world. Having these things are no use to you when the curse of death is upon you because of your sin. If the wrath of God continues to abide on you because of your wickedness, what good would a booming economy be to you? So Jesus is making Nicodemus aware of his need for radical transformation. In light of this, 
Let's look at what the kingdom is. It is necessary to establish what the kingdom of God is because the kingdom is the whole purpose of Jesus' statement to Nicodemus that he must be born again. If you aren't born again, you can't enter the kingdom. But ask yourself this. Why does it matter that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again? Why should someone care if they don't see it? If someone walked up to you and said, if you don't give me $100,000, you won't be able to see my stamp collection. Your reaction would probably be, who cares? I don't want to see your stamp collection anyway. You would respond that way because you know you have no interest in stamps. No offense to those who do. So you wouldn't be willing to spend so much money to see them. But if someone came to you and said, unless you give me $100,000, you cannot get the surgery you need and you will die. Now you're listening. Because you understand the gravity of what depends upon your payment of the money. Likewise, you need to understand what the kingdom is before you can really grasp what you'll be missing out on if you could not see it or enter it. So, broadly speaking, the kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign and everlasting rule over all of creation. In Psalm 103, we read, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. In Daniel 7, we also read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Also, we can zoom in on this all-encompassing dominion and look more narrowly at what is meant by the kingdom of God. You see, it can also refer to the collection of all of those who have willingly and lovingly subjected themselves to the authority of God and his Christ. I'm talking about the church, the people of God, those who have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Only these people will inherit the earth and have their home in the New Jerusalem. And this is the point of creation. That God has made for himself a people to be his own. To love and worship him and to live with him. In Revelation 21 we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're moving towards. Every tick on the clock is leading towards this glorious reality. This is to be the consummation of all history. The kingdom of God in this sense has always been the plan of God. From the very beginning. God always planned to redeem fallen man from sin. Punish and remove the wicked from the earth. And then live in paradise with man. You see, at all times and in all places, God has been in control of humanity, even though it may not appear so, because of rampant sin, ungodliness, and rejection of God's word. But make no mistake, the day is coming when the rule of Jesus will be unopposed, unmocked, and undoubted the point I'm making is that the kingdom of God is marked by the complete and total rule of Jesus where he is surrounded only by those who love, worship and obey him 1 Corinthians 6 says do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, only the righteous are allowed in. And the rest? Well, to put it bluntly, they go to eternal hellfire. This is why it matters. This is why you need to care about being born again. So that you can enter the kingdom of God and escape the wrath and judgment of God. But who among us is fit for this righteous kingdom? Well, beloved, this brings us to our second theme, the nature of man. It's now time for some self-examination. Not just of ourselves individually, but of the human race as a whole. Who are we? What characterizes us fundamentally? What is our nature? What resides within the heart of man? And why is this important? Understanding what man is at heart will show us why being born again is necessary. Firstly though, it is already clear from the language Jesus uses, using the word must, that being born again is an absolute necessity. After all, Jesus doesn't merely suggest the new birth as one way to enter the kingdom, as if there were a myriad of ways and he was just offering insignificant by-the-way advice. No! He says you must be born again. There is one way to enter the kingdom. And if you are not born again, you will not enter. But that doesn't actually answer the question of why it is an absolute necessity. Answering this question is the reason for us examining the nature of man. So let's look at what the scriptures say about man. Genesis 1, 26-27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. So there are two main points that come out of this portion of scripture that I want us to focus on. Man was created in the image and likeness of God. And two... In the day that he was created, man and everything else God had made was very good. So what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? As you can imagine, this question has been a source of much confusion and indeed controversy over the years. Some people take this to mean that man himself is a God. However, the Bible is clear that there is only one God. And that there is no one like him. Rather, being made in the image and likeness of God refers to the resemblance that man, as God's unique creation, bears with his creator. Put simply, there are ways in which we resemble God and ways in which we do not. These can be divided into two groups. God's communicable attributes and God's incommunicable attributes. Or put another way, God's shareable attributes and God's non-shareable attributes. There are attributes that God cannot share with us because only the one who is God can possess them. Three of these we should all know well. God's omnipresence. God is in all places at once. God's omnipotence. God possesses infinite and absolute power. And God's omniscience. God knows everything. These three 
attributes that God alone possesses because he is God. On the other hand, his communicable attributes can be shared. For example, mentally, man has the ability to reason and choose. This reflects God's intelligence. The architect of the universe has given us the ability to think. We think up symphonies and flying machines and government policies and the list can go on and on. Socially, man was made for fellowship and to live in community. This is reflective of God's own triune nature. Father, Son and Spirit. Being in perfect loving unity for all eternity. I want you to realize that this is why even prior to the fall... The only thing pronounced to be not good was for man to be alone. That is why God made Eve for Adam. For him to have community and fellowship with her. And then by extension, with all of mankind whom they would produce. And one more attribute, and I think this is an especially significant one. Morally, man was made upright and innocent in reflection of God's own holiness and purity. Remember what we read in Genesis? God looked at all that he had made, including man, and said that it was very good. This is why man has a moral compass, a conscience that tells him what is good. But of course, there's a problem. Mankind is not functioning as it should. Do we live in harmony with God and other people? No. We fight and abuse each other every day while showing no regard for the commands of God. Are we properly reasoned in our thoughts? No. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness and instead we believe much foolishness so that we can justify our sin and please ourselves. Are we morally upright? No. We sin against God every day in thought and deed. And what's more, we enjoy it. Do you realize that we love to do the things that God hates? Man did not continue the way that God made him. He sinned. He fell from his original state. And this image, this wonderful, beautiful likeness that we have in common with our Creator was marred and twisted and distorted. Most of us should know the story found in Genesis 3. God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or else he would surely die. Adam disobeyed. And so he incurred punishment upon himself and all who would come from his loins, generation after generation. All of humanity fell when Adam fell because... This is important. Adam was our representative. Theologians refer to this special position Adam has in relation to the rest of humanity as federal headship. I'll say it again. Federal headship. R.C. Sproul, the brilliant theologian and Bible teacher who has recently gone home to with the Lord, wrote this concerning the federal headship of Adam. And I quote, This view teaches that Adam acted as a representative of the entire human race. With the test that God set before Adam and Eve, he was testing the whole of mankind. Adam's name means man or mankind. Adam was the first being created. Rather, first human being created. He stands at the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden to act not only for himself, but for all of his future descendants. Just as a federal government has a chief spokesman who is the head of the nation, so Adam was the federal head of mankind. The chief idea of federalism is that when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. His fall was our fall. When God punished Adam by taking away his original righteousness, we were all likewise punished. The curse of the fall affects us all. 
Not only was Adam destined to make his living by the sweat of his brow, but that is true for all of us as well. Not only was Eve consigned to have pain in childbirth, but that has been true for women of all human generations. The offending serpent in the garden was not the only member of his species who was cursed to crawl on his belly. End quote. This is what the scriptures affirm. Our fallenness in Adam. In Romans 5.12 we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 15. By one man's offense, many died. Verse 18. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Verse 19. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And look at what, look at what the scriptures say about the nature of this sin. Romans 1 says... And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. This is what we are in our natural state. We inherit this wickedness from our father, Adam. We are made in his image and his likeness. Corrupt like Adam. Spiritually dead like Adam. Look at Genesis 5 when Adam's son Seth was born. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of his son, in his own likeness, according to his image, and named himself. Did you catch that? The scripture makes a point to express that Seth was made in the image of his father, Adam. The theologian John Gill, who preached at the same church as C.H. Spurgeon, but over a hundred years earlier, says this about the image which Adam passed on to his son. And I quote, not in the likeness and after the image of God in which Adam was created. For having sinned, he lost that image. At least it was greatly defaced. And he came short of the glory of God. And could not convey it to his posterity. Who are and ever have been conceived in sin, shapen in iniquity, are polluted and unclean, foolish and disobedient, Averse to all that is good and prone to all that is evil. The sinfulness of nature is conveyed by natural generation. End quote. The point that I've been laboring is that mankind as a whole is fallen because of Adam, and so all of his natural posterity bears his distorted image and are born spiritually dead and at enmity with God. This is what Jesus is implying when he says in John 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Corrupted men can only bring forth corrupted men. So let's do a quick recap. The kingdom of God demands righteousness and man is not righteous. Therefore, he cannot enter it. Having been born of corrupted flesh under Adam, we are unfit to be in God's holy presence and we have no desire to be. Now it's true that we may desire comfort and joy and happiness, which are all things that we can only truly have with God, but we want those things for our own selfish reasons and not for His glory. And not the praise of his name. This is why we need to be born again. We are born sinners. So we have a need to have our, our hearts and minds turned away from sinful desire and toward a love for God. And having had this fundamental change to our nature, 
We can put faith in Jesus and be saved. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we need the new birth so that we can live less sinful lives and do good deeds and then on the basis of that we can enter the kingdom. That's not the gospel. That's heresy. Our works are not the basis for our acceptance before God. Make no mistake. When the believer enters heaven he does so only based upon the work of Jesus. I'm talking about imputed righteousness. The transference of Jesus' perfectly lived life to the bank account, you could say, of the believer. We are saved by the grace of God, and once we have been born again, we are able to put our faith in Jesus. Because prior to that new birth, we could not see our need for a Savior. This radical transformation will naturally lead to a qualitative change in how we live our lives. So having understood why we need to care about the kingdom and why we must be born again, let's look at the new man that is created once we have been born again. The question we now need to ask about the new birth is what would be the point of being born a second time? Having been born the first time in sin, what use would it be to by some marvel of science make my way back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? I'll tell you what, my mother would not be too thrilled about that idea. <laughs> but joking aside, a new birth that is of the same sort of the, as the first will do us no good. We need a different sort of birth. Rather than being born of the flesh again, we need to be born of the spirit anew. At this point, we'll be looking at the third theme. The nature of the new man. It would be helpful to remind ourselves of Jesus' statement to Nicodemus. So let's go back to John 3, verses 5 to 7. And we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, we should recognize that Jesus is using a few different words to really talk about the same thing. So we shouldn't get confused because of our Lord's references to being born of water and being born of the Spirit and being born again. As we examine these terms, it will become clear that Jesus is talking about regeneration. Regeneration is the act by which God ends a person's old life with its wicked desires and hatred of God and gives a person a new life wherein that person has a new set of desires and a changed heart that is capable of pursuing and loving God. As we look at various scriptures which talk about salvation and regeneration, I want us to be on the lookout for how all of these ideas of being born of water and being born of the Spirit and being born again tie together to explain one consistent truth. The truth that, in Christ, man is made clean, made alive, and made new. So let's look at how water and the Spirit are used in Scripture. Isaiah 32 talks of the Spirit being poured out like water. In chapter 44 of the same book, we read, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Zechariah 13. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanliness. Ezekiel 36. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. John 7. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Last one. Titus 3. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I could go on and on with the Scriptures. In all of those Scriptures that we have just read, especially the Old Testament ones, all of them have to do with the spirit and water either cleansing or giving life. So I think it's safe to say that when Nicodemus heard Jesus reference water and the spirit, he himself, being a teacher of the Old Testament, that is Nicodemus, would have recognized that Jesus was talking about cleansing and renewal. And what about being born again? Let's examine that. The term born again is the Greek word anothen. Anothen. Which means to be fathered, conceived, or produced from above. From a higher place of things which come from heaven or God. Also, it means from the beginning, or from the first, or anew, or over again. And to put it yet another way, to be born again is to be produced from the top down. From God out of heaven to man on earth. Conceived all over again from the beginning. To become new from God. So the Greek word anothen, from where we get the term born again, carries with it the source of this birth. So when Jesus says, you must be born again, he is saying, you must be made new, and it is from God. And the result of this new birth on a man is, well, a new man. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, thanks to the new birth, our nature is no longer defined by fallen Adam, but by risen Christ. Rather than being made in Adam's image, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And this newness makes us both willing and able to repent of our sins and see the beauty of our crucified Lord and put our faith in Him and be saved. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, this is why. 
without being made new, he could not even see his need for a savior and he would never repent. Once a man has been made new and puts his faith in Jesus, there is a change to one's way of thinking and living that takes place. If we really have been made new, we will show forth the fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These characteristics define men and women who are born anew in Christ. And this brings us to our fourth and final theme, the nature of the new birth. Now I'm sure that most of you hearing this message find it comforting and glorious. But that's not the reaction that Nicodemus has. Basically, his response to all this is, That's absurd! How can any of this be possible? Now, some people think that Nicodemus was so clueless that he didn't understand that Jesus was using figures and metaphors to make a point. So that he actually thought Jesus was saying a man literally needed to be born a second time if he was to see God's kingdom. Perhaps, but not necessarily. Some believe that Nicodemus himself, being a teacher and a Jewish one at that, at least understood that Jesus was using an analogy, but nonetheless could not accept the incredible truth he was hearing through the analogy. It is quite possible that Nicodemus recognizes the very serious implications of Jesus' use of new birth to make his point. It would mean that all of a man's accomplishments thus far in life were worthless and not only that, a man could do nothing of himself to rectify the situation any more than a baby could choose when and where to be born. This is why our Lord used birth as the analogy to expose Nicodemus to the truth because it very effectively conveyed the newness of the person being born and the fact that they did not and indeed could not have had a part in it. We don't get to pick the date we come into existence. Nor the place, nor who our parents will be, who our family will be. We had no control over our conception and likewise have no control over the birth of our new spiritual life. With this in mind, Don't forget who Nicodemus was. A Pharisee. And a member of the Sanhedrin. The ruling court of Israel. And a respected teacher of Israel. These were the people who Jesus calls hypocrites. These were the whitewashed tombs. Pleasant to look at on the outside. But on the inside, full of dead men's bones. These men made their own laws. And added them to God's laws. So that they could appear more righteous to onlookers. These men saddled the common man with so many rules and regulations that they could not possibly keep them. These men were proud, arrogant legalists in love with their own status and their own works. These men spent their entire lives strutting around, boasting about how righteous they were and showing off how acceptable to God they must be. And now Jesus says, no, all of that means absolutely nothing. Because the only righteousness that gets you into the kingdom is that which comes from me and that which I give to you. Nothing you do by your own effort will suffice and you don't even have a say in it. But Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Nicodemus simply cannot believe this. And what's more, Jesus backs up his birth analogy with another analogy. As if the first one wasn't devastating enough to Nicodemus' worldview. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
You know, it's interesting to note that Jesus never actually tells us how this new birth and regeneration are possible. Sure, we know how it is accomplished, as we see in other scriptures how Jesus has to live a perfect life on our behalf, die in our place, and rise from the dead, and we are given faith to believe in him. But how does it work? How does God create something from nothing? Y'all could tell me? How does a dead man come to life? How can a man be born when he is old? Folks, these are all miraculous works of God. And far from understanding how they are all possible, all we can do is in faith recognize that they do indeed happen. The earth is indeed here from nothing. The dead have and will indeed arise from the dead, both physically and spiritually. And a man can indeed be born anew, even though he is old. Just as we see and hear the effects of the wind, we can see the miraculous work of salvation all around us. As surely as you hear the sound of the wind and feel the cool breeze, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going, as surely as this is the regeneration of God's chosen ones. And it is all God's doing. You cannot control the wind, nor can you control the Spirit of God when He blows into the life of the sinner and causes him to live. You cannot refuse Him when He wants to move, nor can you push Him when He wants to be still. Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. The point here is that Since a man's new spiritual life is completely a work of God, man gets absolutely no credit. And all the glory and honor and praise rightly goes to God. Nicodemus, a boastful man, must humble himself and concede that he cannot save himself by his own work. Did you know that there are only two religions in the world? Just two. The religion where man can earn paradise by his own accomplishment. And then there's Christianity. Where faith in Jesus is the only way. Everyone in the religion of works. The Muslim. The Hindu. The Roman Catholic. The Buddhist. All of them depend upon their own effort. And their own merit to achieve paradise. They think they can go to God and say, God, look what I've done. I deserve heaven. You've got to let me in. You don't got a choice. This is mine. This is my right. But the Christian depends upon the effort and merit of another, Christ Jesus. We come with nothing in our hands. So we don't work to earn our salvation. Rather, we work because we have been saved. And have had our affections turned toward our glorious God. And desire to worship and serve Him. We have been born again. Friends, we've just spent some time delving into some amazing truths. So in conclusion, I want to make sure that you know what to do with what you've just heard. I'm aware that this morning... I could be preaching to two different groups of people. Those who have been made alive and born again by the Spirit, and those who have not. If you are hearing me today and you are not a believer, not a believer in Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's no fruit of repentance in your life. You need to be born again. Jesus, through the Scriptures, is saying to you, Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sins and cry out to God. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. He has promised that whoever comes to him, he will not cast out. I urge you today not to despise the mercy and patience of God for another second. The Bible warns that all who are not found in the kingdom of God will be cast into outer darkness. Into the lake of fire, where there's weeping 
and gnashing of teeth for all eternity nonetheless repent avoid destruction for it is better to have life in Christ Jesus a better economy can't save you better self esteem can't save you no politician can't save you neither Getting along with the people around you can't save you. The root of your problem goes to your very nature. And you need a new one from God. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he, being God in human flesh, lived a perfect life that you could not live. And he gave his life on the cross, paying for your crimes. And three days later... He arose from the dead and ascended bodily into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. Turn from your sins. Believe and be saved. For those who have already tasted of the sweetness of life with Jesus, I encourage you, live in light of this glorious reality and rejoice in light of the new birth our present sufferings can't be compared to the glory that will await us. The things that God has plans for us, we can't even comprehend. Consider that your life on earth, most of us don't get past 80. Compare that to eternity. What are the struggles we face now? Why should they bother us so? Every day when you rise from your bed, thank God for newness of life and let it put a song on your heart and praise on your lips because you were bought with a great price thank God that when you were dead in sin and cared nothing about him he called you and made you alive and gave you faith and always look forward to the day when all who are God's children will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.